Hey guys, and welcome to What Was Her Name? The show where I will uncover the stories of domestic abuse survivors. I'm your host, Maya Hoover. Hey guys, and welcome to What Was Her Name? My name is Maya, and I am the host of What Was Her Name? Uh, This is going to be part two with Dr. Carl Russ. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Um, if you have not yet listened to part one, you can go onto Spotify or Apple Podcast, where we talk about the father's heart on divorce. Uh, Part two is actually going to be titled, uh, The Brain Doesn't Like Change. And this is a subject that I personally have learned more and more about as I've continued to go through therapy with Dr. Carl Russell. And it's something that I'm really uh, eager to talk about because I just think that like, if you're not looking for how to heal, and if you're not in therapy and asking the right questions, I think that this goes missed a lot of times. And I think that it's really important to know if you are really, you know, have experienced trauma in any, any shape or form, whether it be like through your childhood, domestic abuse, um, and so on. So first off, Dr. Carl Russell, I just want to say thank you for coming on and doing a part two. I know a lot of people have reached out since they heard part one and they are really moved by that episode. So thank you for that. You're welcome. I enjoy being with you. (laughs) Okay. So as you know, Dr. Carl Russell, so we have talked quite a bit about my central nervous system and how it's really been dysregulated since being in an abusive relationship. I didn't really understand what was going on with me. Even when I first became a patient of yours, I would always say like, something's wrong with me. Like, I don't know what's wrong with me. Like, I just feel like I'm a mess. I'm all over the place. Like I'm, you know, misreading situations. I'm having a difficult time cultivating a life that I know that I want. And I know that I'm worthy of because I keep ending up right back in these chaotic, you know, cycles. And you explained to me in a session and you said something to me that I think really changed the game for me. You said like the brain doesn't like change. And I'd like to start there and you sort of just explaining what happens to our brains when we experience any sort of like traumatic experience or when we experience like for, in my case, um, over time, continued abuse, what happens to the brain and how does that change and what happens to the central nervous system? Okay. Well, it's a, it's a pretty big question. Um, Loaded. It may be a little technical, but I'll try to keep it uh, to very, very practical, easy stuff. Yeah. First of all, our entire brain is wired for survival. Hmm. Everything. In fact, you can uh, basically what stress is. This is all a stress. Stress is about fight, flight, freeze. So it's, 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 it's how we adapt. It's how we rise to the challenges and changes in our world. I mean, if we walk outside and somebody's standing there with a knife, we're probably not going to be very calm about it. We're going to go into fight, flight, or freeze. Hmm. Our heart rate's going to go up and all kinds of, of things. And so it, it prepares us, it equips us, it, it's, it, 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 it enables us to adapt to whatever the, uh, the challenge is. Mm-hmm. Well, to rise to challenge also is to rise to change. We just change the environment in which we have a person holding a knife. Uh, you don't think of it in physical terms. We walk outside in the middle of August, it's 105 degrees, and we start sweating. Well, we don't stop to think, oh, it's hot. I need to start the evaporative cooling process. No, we just start sweating. 
right? It, 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 it's, it's involuntary. It just, it just hits us. And that's the brain trying to keep us alive. And so it, it, we call it the autonomic nervous system. It's autonomic because it's like automatic. We mm-hmm. just do it. So everything, again, it's about survival. When I say the brain does not like change, well, you can say that stress equals change. Now, some of that change may be good, maybe pleasant. In fact, can be downright fun. Uh, I, I'm kind of a, uh, an adrenaline junkie. And when I was young and 10 foot tall and bulletproof, I thought, you know, when I was in Marine Corps, I used to enjoy skydiving. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, that changes the environment, all right. But it was an exciting thing. Still, the thing is, my heart rate went up, my blood pressure went up, but this was a thrill. Mm-hmm. But you take, like my wife, it was a very different person. You take her up in an airplane, you put a parachute on her back and say, jump. She's going to have visions of a bug on a windshield. This yeah. is not going to be fun. Yeah. She may die of fright before she get, gets to the ground. She may develop PTSD. Hmm. I mean, it, it, it could give her nightmares. So we have to ask the question, why is it fun for one person? And it's, it's a horrible experience for another person. Now, this is not to say... All experiences are 100% subjective. I don't know that any of us found 9-11 funny. I don't know that anybody, any of us had found a, a, something good about uh, a 9-11. Okay. But when, let's say we're, we're in school, say college, and the The professor comes in and says, we're having a quiz. Well, immediately, our heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up. uh, We get a little bit nervous. Mm -hmm. What's happening is our body and our mind are adapting to this new, to this change of suddenly, my environment includes, uh, uh, you know, a quiz. Well, what and, and what happens when it does that, it causes the mind to get a little bit more focused and it helps us. Hmm. Now, that's called um, that again, that's the, the good stress. This good stress is called eustress. But if we walked in a classroom and come, somebody came in with a gun brandishing it, it, you know, it would turn to distress. Right. So whatever the change is, it's stress. It could be good stress. It could be bad stress. But when he's talking about the brain not wanting to to change, uh, we'll go back to the sweating thing. You walk outside, the brain goes, oh, it's hot. I need to start the evaporative cooling process to bring the temperature back down so my temperature does not change outside of where it should be. So it's trying to keep us alive. Uh, Now, in trauma, what's trauma for one person, again, like the skydiving, may not be trauma for, for another person. I don't think there's anybody that ever thinks that uh, domestic violence is ever going to be, you know, fun. Right. It's not fun for the person being abused. Um, imagine a balance scale. I'm going to change crank here a little bit, but it's going to help explain what I'm going to talk about next. You have a balance scale. Now put your emotions on one side of that balance scale. And take all your thinking and believing and put it on the other side of the balance scale. Now, imagine the emotions going up. Well, when the emotions going up on the balance scale, it means the cognitions, the thinking and believing goes down. Hmm. 
here's a guy. He's in full-blown fight mode. The woman may be in full-blown flight mode, or she may be in, you know, freeze mode. But what happens, if, you know, let's talk about fight or flight. He goes into fight, she goes into flight. So all these massive changes are taking place in the body, the heart rate, blood pressure, all of that. Uh, for him, what happens, the, the anger hits to the very top. And when it does, that means the cognition, the thinking hits all the way to the bottom. Mm -hmm. Almost all of us have had the uh, uh, the experience where we got into an argument with somebody and, you know, some harsh words uh, 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 were said and maybe some things we didn't mean to say, but they came out. And later we think, well, that wasn't my finest hour. What in the world got into me? Mm -hmm. What got into us, when the emotions went real high, we were not in our right mind. Right. I mean, our, our our thinking was all the way down. And so because of that, we tend to say things and sometimes, many times, do things that we have, at that point, no control over. Now, I say no control, but I'll have to qualify that at, uh, here in, in a minute. But the point is, when the emotions go high, the ability to think clearly, rationally and logically go, goes down. When I was a police officer, I went to a domestic violence call. And you can see the guy beating his wife's head through the sheetrock. Uh, we got two officers. We get in there. Well, he quit beating her, but then he picks up a baseball bat and starts coming after two officers. Two officers have the guns drawn, trained on his chest, yelling at him, put it down, put it down. But he kept coming. Now, who in the world brings a stick to a gunfight? Well, he wasn't in his right mind. He wasn't in his mind at all. You see, there's a part of the brain. Think of the front part. We call it the prefrontal cortex. When that person's anger or when a person's fear has reached the very top, the prefrontal cortex has been taken offline. I mean, all logic, all rational thought, all you know, self-control is absolutely gone out. I mean, we're, we're just, we can't think clearly. In these times, our, our memory will suffer. In these times, our, our ability to think through things and solve problems will suffer. So imagine that uh, we're just walking along and out of the woods steps a lion and it licks its lips because, well, we're on the lunch menu. Mm -hmm. We're probably not going to go, here, kitty, and try to pet it. <laughs> yeah. Because we know, we know that, 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 that we're lunch. Right. Uh, we're probably not going to try to fight it. Probably what we're going to do is run. Mm -hmm. If you're running from a hungry lion, how many algebraic equations do we need to solve? None. Right. Problem solving is thrown out the window. If we're running from a hungry lion, how many phone numbers do we need to know? We 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 can't. That's why we have nine one one. The research is we can remember three numbers. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is the big thing. Our brain is going offline. And this uh, part of our brain that does nothing except survival has taken over. You know, you, you get uh, uh, approached by somebody with, with a knife. You've never been there before. You, you don't know how to deal with it. Well, you're going to have all of these things going on. And we were not going to... We're probably not going to know how we're going to, to react. Are we going to react and fight? Are we going to react and flight? Are we going to react and, and freeze? Well, because it's part of the autonomic nervous system, we may not even be aware of why we're going to do what we're going to do. So if somebody is like 
in a situation like an abusive relationship um, and that is happening over time and they continue to be facing these traumatic situations over and over again and their brain is like going offline once they're out of that abusive relationship how does that affect you like even if you're out of that specific situation what happens to your brain once you leave that situation well let's let's talk about first where your brain gets to when you have well stress comes in uh, acute stress that's daily everyday things like you know flat tires that's not a big deal but then you have chronic stress interpersonal relationships are the number one chronic stressor in the world okay and and uh, that means it, when we're in a bad re- relationship a toxic relationship one in which we're being abused what's going to happen it's going to retrain the brain it's going to set up uh, we call it um uh, I'll think of it in a minute uh, uh it's a super um sensitive uh, system in the brain, neurohypersensitivity. That's what I was looking for. Now, neurohypersensitivity is the brain remembering trauma. And the reason it remembers trauma is it doesn't want the trauma uh, 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 repeated. So this goes back to, to open flame. Now, think about walking over and sticking your hand in open flame just to see if it will burn. Well, nobody does that. And the reason is, is because at some point we got burned mm-hmm. and that memory, no pun intended, was singed on our brain. I mean, it was, it was like branded and the brain holds on to that pain in order to remind us every time we get close to, to heat to stay a respectable distance. Mm-hmm. I mean, if somebody grabs your your arm and tries to force your hand into that flame, you're going to fight tooth and nail to get away with that, to get away from from, from that uh, experience. Mm -hmm. Well, that's neurological hypersensitivity. We can develop that with just about anything. So if a person is in an abusive relationship where they're getting be and they never know why they may never know when they don't know what the person's gonna what, what, what what's gonna set off a, a person now, sometimes it's predictable you know if it's known that every time the husband drinks he gets violent yeah that's then we can predict it but we'll talk about that here in a second but many times in domestic violence, the wife or the or the partner has no idea when it's going to come, how it's going to come, why it's going to come, and the brain gets set up in this neurological hypersensitivity to always keep that forefront in their mind. Yeah. It's like, and it's and it's doing that, trying to protect us, trying to tell us get out of this, get out of this, get away from this. So really quickly. So for people who are listening, like, can you give some examples of how somebody can recognize that they may be like, how they can detect like, okay, this is my neurological hypersensitivity talking. For example, like one of mine is like, I will read body language quite frequently. Um, in an effort to like look for when the ball's going to drop because that was how I survived for years. And so what are some examples of like ways that people can maybe like recognize like when they are experiencing that neurological hypersensitivity? Okay, well, let's recognize how it affects us. Mm-hmm. Neurological hypersensitivity will affect us physically mm-hmm. and our body, emotionally, cognitively that's in our thinking and behaviorally if we are having some kind of strong emotional uh, a reaction like suddenly fear anxiety 
It might be depression. But the common one is fear and anxiety. Uh, any sense that, that we are in danger. You know, it's, it's the emotion. So that will be in the emotional domain. Another way that we can oftentimes recognize the neurological hypersensitivity is in our body. Maybe a heart starts, uh, you know, a little tachycardia, right? heart rate starts going up. Or suddenly our muscles, you know, especially in our neck and shoulders, start getting real, real tense. Uh, we may even feel jittery. You know, the, the, a little trembling of the hands. Um, so when we see those things going on, it could be neurological hypersensitivity. This is not related to, uh, you know, um, exercise or, or anything. Mm -hmm. Now, cognitively, neurological hypersensitivity can reduce our cognitive functioning. Or it can change it. Now, this is where there can be some real difficulty. The difficulty is when we have been uh, abused. Um, and I'm speaking a little bit from some personal experience because as a child, uh, my dad was horribly uh, physically uh, abusive. Uh, I remember getting slapped so hard and knocked me out. Yeah. So we can develop that. The thing is, when we do, sometimes we start almost predicting as a, as a way of, uh, of protecting ourselves. Again, these are things that are happening below the radar. We're not aware of it. So the brain starts looking for signs that can tell us, uh, you know, if this person might be in danger. So, well, or it might be dangerous. So we sometimes will read into, like you said, body language. We might read into some kind of tone. We might read into some kind of look or some word. We might read something in and say, oh, this person uh, hates me. This person is going to hurt me. This person. And we're reading that even though the other person may have absolutely no intent. For instance, uh, raised voices. You know, there, there are some families where they pretty much use raised voices all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's no violence, there's no name calling, but they just, you know, they seem tend to yell at each other. There really are uh, families like that. And then you take another person who, who grows up in a home and her voices are never raised. So you take a man at one of those, those homes, and I'm talking about some very specific clients that I've had over the years. He comes from a home where yelling what, what, what was common. He thinks it's that's what's normal. That's that was his environment he grew up in, and the woman is raised up in a home where no voices were never raised. Now that man and that that and that woman get 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 married. Well, he raises his voice and my land. She just what in the world is happening? Mm -hmm. If in her home. When the voices got raised, she got slapped around. Mm -hmm. You got this big neurological hypersensitivity thing. And so any kind of raised voices is going to jump in and say, you are in danger. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that's why, like, I'm glad that you said this because um, I think that that's why I think this is really an important subject to cover because I find that like coming out of abuse and then entering into a safe relationship that I always had this perspective, like once I'm out of that, I'll like be able to just like know and detect an unsafe relationship. And like, of course there's like the clear indicators and clear signs that you are headed for danger, but 
I think that because of the neurological hypersensitivity, it makes myself included a lot of survivors. It makes it really difficult for them to enter into a safe relationship and navigate even like just any interpersonal relationships because they find themselves misreading or feeling extremely you know triggered by something that used to be an indicator of like for example you used like this girl when she heard a raised voice she knew that the next thing it would kind of come after that is being slapped or you know when someone shuts down um you know that that emotional abuse is going to continue for the next you know week um and so when you notice that somebody's mood shifts you think oh here we go like you know here comes the emotional abuse but that's just like the neurological hypersensitivity talking, but a lot of people don't really know that that's even going on. And so I feel like a lot of people don't really know how to cope in their relationships and they don't really know why. And it's because they, you know, they're, it's just all dysregulated. Right. And so that's just some of the stuff, Mm -hmm. but again, how do we recognize it? It's mm-hmm. going to be in the emotions. It can be physical. Uh, it can reduce our ability to clearly see things. Our rational brain is is being is trying to be overwhelmed by their survival brain. Mm-hmm. So that's basically what what that is. So how do we deal with it? Right. Well, first of all. We really need somebody to help us walk through that part of, am I seeing this correctly? Mm -hmm. And that's going to usually be through some kind of counseling. Maybe not everybody can afford it, but uh, uh, maybe they they have a pastor or another religious person that may have some seminary training that has dealt with some of this, perhaps. Um, Maybe they have a good friend that has a good relationship and they can spot uh, better. See, but that's that's so tough, Pastor Carl, because it's like, like, what do you, what do you say for people who don't have that community and who don't have, because I feel like there are a lot of people who, like have been isolated for a long time and then they're trying to rebuild their lives and they may not have really good interpersonal relationships. Um, They may come from like an abusive family. Like they may not have that community or even friends who mean well and do the best to try and like help. I've had many people in my life who like didn't know what that neurological hypersensitivity was. And I feel like people like you, what's that? quote that you always say to me about people's opinions like everybody has one or something about smelling <laughs> well the newer one what is it i always forget it is every everybody has an opinion and opinions are like noses everybody's got one and they all smell yes why do i always think it has to do with a shoe i don't know maybe because it smells no, <laughs> my old way is there Appendages like you know, you know your your tail. Everybody's got one, and they all stink. <laughs> so, uh, but keep in mind that opinions are just that. Opinions are not based upon factual evidence. So one of the things that we have to do it's it's a it's a two part process. Whenever we feel activated, whenever we're looking at some kind of behavior, what we we want to observe it and say, I need to find evidence for what I'm seeing here. So if a person raises their voice, I mean, is this all of the time or is it just periodically? Is this coming out of nowhere? I mean, there's no reason to raise his voice. Or is this only with certain particular situations? Now, as I try to identify that, if I want to feel better, then I have to do two things. If I identify it and I'm thinking this 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 is bad, this is this this behavior, you know, the raised voices or whatever it is, 
and I examine it and I find evidence that it's not what I think it is, then the two-part process is disputation and displacement. Disputation is, whoa, just a minute. Before you take a 10-foot leap, will a one-foot leap do? Mm -hmm. uh, do I really need to go down that rabbit hole? Am I overreacting? Mm -hmm. Now, all thoughts come in four forms. Rational thought and irrational thought. We talked about that when we talked about, you know, the, the guy that came out with the baseball bat. Mm -hmm. Then there's adaptive and maladaptive thoughts. Now, a maladaptive thought is simply a thought that it may be completely rational, but it's harmful to us. Now, as a Christian, one of the uh, things that happened to me not all that long ago, somebody had cut across like four lanes of traffic, pulled over right in front of me, slammed on the brakes, and made a U-turn and didn't, didn't even get, give a signal. Well, rationally, I had a right to be angry. Right. Was it adaptive? Was it helpful for me? No. So my, my process had to be something like, just a minute, is this guy worth my mental health? So I dispute it. I go, this guy is not worth my mental health. I'm not going to let him do that. So how am I going to think about it? Well, and another thought, I, 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 of course, when he did that, I bust out. Do you always drive like an idiot or is today a special day for you? Well, we had our windows rolled up, so he didn't hear it. But it's like God spoke to me and said, now imagine, Carl, you just said that to his face. And then two minutes later, you have an opportunity to tell him about my love for him. Do you think he's going to listen to you? Well, no, but I don't want to talk about me. I want to talk about him. Now, you see... What I saw there is even though my emotions and my thoughts of this guy is a jerk, he's an idiot, even though I had thoughts and, and the emotion, they were totally rational. He was a jerk. He, in fact, he was being an idiot doing something of that nature. But what I saw is that because of my words and my emotions, I'm letting a complete stranger rule over how I'm going to feel. Now, there is no situation in the world, never has been, never will be. There is no situation that is worth our mental health. And for anybody who's in an abusive relationship, there is no situation hard well let me rephrase that there's hardly a situation worth our physical health now um let's talk a little bit about uh perspective um how we see things mm -hmm. so you have a young mother and she um well she's a young mother but she's by herself and she's up uh here in the foothills of Albuquerque and taking a hike and and uh, Bobcat, the mountain lion, steps out. And uh, she might just decide to run. But you take this same young mother who has now got a four-year-old that's walking with her and the mountain lion comes out, uh, chances are she's not going to run. Mm -hmm. And that mountain lion is in trouble. Because she's going to put herself in physical danger to protect her children. Mm -hmm. And I see that in the field of domestic violence. A lot of times a woman will stand there and get beat. But once he turns on the children, sometimes that's when she goes to the defense. Mm -hmm. But sometimes her fear is still so great. You know, so... This neurological hypersensitive is getting to us.
Now, again, this stuff affects us physically, emotionally, cognitively, and, and behaviorally. Here's something we know. Anything, any symptom that's in one of those four domains, if we affect it positively, it will affect all the other domains. So, for instance, you imagine, imagine you see somebody and their anger is so great. You see their face is all twisted. Their, their neck has disappeared. Their shoulders are up. They're, they're, everything in them is tense. They're turning red and they're huffing and puffing like a bull in a ring. Yeah, many of us have seen that many times. Yeah, that's a person who is dangerous. That's a person who's about out of control. And you need to get away from, from that situation. But so imagine seeing that, that person or being that person. Or our fear might be so great. That's exactly what we look like, too. Our, you know, the face is contorted. Muscles are tight, and the breathing is fast and shallow. Well, now imagine maybe that same person, and they go up to a, a beautiful lake, and it's nice and quiet. They have a cabin up there. They get a veranda around it, and they sit there on the porch, and they look at that, and they'll sit down. And they'll draw in a deep breath. And then as they exhale slowly. All the muscles start relaxing. Now, the brain works by the principle of association. What that means, it associates fast, shallow breathing with war and slow deep breathing with peace so the brain is also equated tense muscles they especially the hypertense with war that's their muscles you know spiraling you know getting you know, uh, wound up like a like a watch spring, so it can explode. But the brain has also equated relaxed muscles with peace, so it can actually trick our brain by deep, slow breathing and relaxing our muscles. So you just find a quiet spot. Start breathing real deep, about four inches below the belly button, and do it real slow. And every time you exhale, you just keep relaxing the muscles. The heart rate goes down, blood pressure goes down, and when all when the heart rate goes down, the blood pressure goes down. So we have a behavior of breathing and relaxation. That affects us physically, and when that affect or yeah physically, and what affects us physically is going to affect us emotionally. I've literally had people in my office where I've done this. They've been having a panic attack. Their heart rates up to 150, 160 beats per minute, and in three minutes with this exercise, it never fails. That panic attack is gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I remember you giving me this tool and like, <clears throat> I always heard people say like deep breathing exercises help, but I was like, meh, like nothing good. And then I got so desperate. I was like, all right, like I'll just, I'll try to breathe and, and work through these techniques. And like, to this day, whenever I am on the verge of having a panic attack, I will practice these breathing techniques and like the, the anxiety and the panic attacks will dissipate. So definitely like I feel like I I can relate and resonate and like 
through my own experience can say this like genuinely helps for those who are listening who are like me who are like meh I'm good I don't really need to work on breathing and and you notice that when you do that your mind clears up mm-hmm. yeah so again what we did with our physical body you know in our in our behavior then affected our physical body and our heart rate which then affected our emotions. And when the emotions went down, our cognitions came back up. That a spot when you might be in danger. Okay. First, if you have somebody in your life that is screaming at you, yelling at you, especially if they're insulting you, putting you down, they're not just criticizing you, you know. Uh, they're 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 demeaning you. They're not treating you with dignity um, and respect. Uh, that's a sign of a dangerous person. That is verbal emotional abuse. Well, some men kind of just stay there. They don't become physical. But many men do become physical. They're, they've lost their mind. Their emotions are out of control. And they let loose. And, because, and many times when they let loose, they're so out of control, they just keep beating and beating and beating. Mm -hmm. And over time, what we see is that kind of behavior will always get worse over time. Right. I want to, I want to, uh, it, it becomes a downward spiral. And at some point, somebody either gets out of the relationship, somebody gets hurt real bad, is in the hospital, or somebody dies. Mm -hmm. And again, your physical and your emotional life is not worth that situation. Right. You know, watch out. Uh, if you're dating somebody and they do that yelling or, or they put you down and ridicule you. I'm not talking about, you know, making a quick joke about something. But, you know, absolutely berating you. You don't want to be in that uh, 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 relationship. And if maybe he uh, just grabs you or pushes you, uh, that's physical. And you can expect that physical to grow over time, turning into slapping, then punching and kicking. So don't let any behavior continue. That's what we have to work on. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I can't change what a people, what a person thinks, feels, or believes. Uh, but I can address a behavior. Mm -hmm. Now, if I try to address a behavior in somebody who's being abusive, and they refuse, and this is a common thing that, that we see in abusive couples, he's got her so convinced that she's worthless and no good and stupid, nobody will ever have her. She believes it. And therefore she stays in the in the relationship. So don't let things escalate. Um I had a question just to backtrack really quick. So when somebody is experiencing ne the neurological hypersensitivity, um, what are some affirmations that you would suggest that they say to themselves? Maybe it's something that they can go back to time and time again to remind themselves that they may be like, so two things, what is an affirmation they could say to themselves to help remind their minds and brains? Like, Hey, like, cause I, I was talking to somebody recently, um, I think it was on, it was Amy Fiedler, actually. She was one of the, um, 
relationship coaches that came on in. Um, she talked just about having a positive dialogue with myself. Um, and like, I used to get really frustrated with the neurological hypersensitivity because it's really difficult to like, know what you were like prior to abuse. And then to now know what you are currently like after the abuse, having to have the neurological hypersensitivity and not being able to just like snap your fingers and it goes away. And she encouraged like a positive, like dialogue with myself and like reminding myself like, Hey, like you are having neurological hypersensitivity. Um, and that is your body's way, your brain's way of protecting yourself. It's not going against you. It's actually trying to help you. It's just trying to help you in a situation where you are safe, but it's like, it's misfiring because you are safe. So like, do you think that that is like a positive thing that can help people who are experiencing confusion when the, when things are misfiring? Other affirmations we can give ourselves if we are in a safe I mean, it's not like like you and Braden. Well, he's never purposely mean. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's certainly not physical. He just says things, and it kind of you know triggers uh, that 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 neurological hypersensitivity. The more you get to know him and his family, and realize, well, this is a little bit of. You know, maybe it's immaturity. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's that. But you find something that has evidence you can tell uh, 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 yourself Mm -hmm. uh, that, hold it. I'm I'm just, I'm overreacting. Or maybe, or at least uh, suspect I may be overreacting. So I want to find evidence. In other words, when we start looking for that evidence, we're trying to get our emotions to come down by bringing our uh, cognitions up. So the more that we become rational and thoughtful, the more that we examine stuff, the more uh, we call it critical thinking. That's not being critical of people. But it's examining and being critical of evidence. What am I seeing here? Um, Those are the best things I can think of for positive self-affirmations. So if I'm feeling triggered Mm -hmm. by something, and I have a number of triggers because uh, of my background, my neurological hypersensitive sensitivity is going to attempt to hijack my prefrontal cortex. And I, it's going to want me to get into fight or flight. And so one of the things I've had to do over the years is I've had to retrain that and develop personal internal dialogue and external skills where I can mitigate that. I don't want to be reactionary. I want to be responsive. Mm-hmm. There's a big difference between a response and a reaction. Mm-hmm. Does that yeah. help? It does. Um, really quick. I know we're like coming near the end of this time, but, um, well, last thing I wanted to say was like part of, part of the topic that, um, I wanted to touch on really quick is like, you know, the reason that the title is called the brain doesn't like change is because during a therapy session, I think you and I were talking about my relationships and, you know, I, I talked to you about how, I'm recognizing the more I heal in the past, I was, I tended to like gravitate towards, uh, people who were like emotionally unavailable or who I needed to like prove my worth and my value to, and didn't really give me the time of day or played games with me or whatever it was. And like, 
then being in a safe relationship with Brayden, he's really like the first safe person I have ever dated. And I mean, I just, because of my childhood as well, haven't had a lot of safe people in my life, steady people. And so Brayden is one of those people. And so I had talked to you about how uncomfortable that made me because like, I can feel myself fighting for the life that I'm cultivating now. And that part of like myself that was so used to the chaos, so used to someone else's chaos that I then started to bring my own chaos and create chaos where there didn't need to be chaos. And you said something to me, you were like, the brain doesn't like change. And like being in a safe relationship is change because I'm not used to it. And I think that something that is like so just like strong on my heart is that like I know that the, that statistically like it increases significantly for trauma survivors to end up right back in the abusive relationship or another abusive relationship one after the other after the other because they're not really doing the work to heal and they don't really understand even how to heal and there's so many other factors that that come into that like finances having to work um maybe not having a really good uh you know counselor or therapist around them i don't know whatever it is and so they end up back in these like toxic relationships but also like they don't even they don't even realize that like they're gravitating towards chaos because their brain is so used to that toxicity and that chaos. And so they have a really difficult time like getting out of that cycle. And like, I want to see people who, you know, come on this, um, come here and they listen to this podcast and they're moved by it and they're impacted by it and they're able to choose safe, healthy partners and really work through this neurological hypersensitivity, but also can like begin to like retrain their brain to like be able to like experience a life that's cultivated through like a healthy relationship and a stable, steady life. And so can you just touch, that's like a fully loaded thing. I feel like people don't fully realize they're like, why do I keep dating like, um, emotionally unavailable guys or guys who treat me like crap? Um, and like why they maybe say no to the nice guy and don't want to end up, they don't want to date the nice guy or the guy who is all these things. And it, it feels boring or it feels like, you know, just not exciting because they're not experiencing trauma like they're used to. Like, can you just explain a little bit of this for people who are listening and and maybe help them understand why they keep choosing those partners? So again, uh, going back to what stress is, stress equals change. Right. So a person who's in a bad relationship, their brain has been conditioned. Uh, that's what's normal. And they they really, you know, they may, part of their brain says, I know this is not healthy, but especially if they grew up in it, they married somebody or they got in a relationship just like dear old dad. Okay. Uh, and then they go from one relationship to another relationship. And each and every one of them, you know, has much the, uh, the same thing going on. That's because their brain is because it says that's normal. We call that homeostasis. And so when a person tries to make change, that creates stress in them and their brain will do things with it without their knowledge or, 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 or their permission. And their brain will be, it will naturally gravitate to certain characteristics that, that the brain is picking up. Now, a person can be charming and all that, all that other stuff, but every one of us, we have a this the survival system. Every human being picks up information. It's like uh, many of us have had the experience that we walk into a room with people that we don't even know. Absolutely not, not not anybody. But we see a person there, and something in our brain tells us, "I don't know what it is about that guy, but I don't want to be stuck in a dark alley with him." Mm-hmm. I tell everybody in every sexual assault victim that I've worked with, uh, when it wasn't 
you know, and I'm talking about a date rape kind of thing. This isn't family or something. They all said, I wish I'd listened to that little voice that was telling me this is not good. Because hmm. the, ra- the rational brain is going, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I must be overreacting. Uh, uh, there's no evidence here. And both that internal alarm is just, you know, going all, all crazy on us. So I tell people, listen to that, to, the, to that voice. You know, we have to look outside. We have to force our brain to look outside. Now, going back to some other things, uh, you know, sometimes a woman has been so conditioned, in other words, homeostasis, into thinking there's something wrong with her. And therefore, she... Her brain will justify getting in a relationship with another abusive person by by her brain thinking, well, this is all, all, all you deserve. And that's why I'm saying we have to fight all of that stuff. So if we want change, I mean, lasting change, we need to look for those signs and symptoms that you know, a person is sending out. And sometimes we just need to trust what that inner voice is. You know, and if it's saying, oh, something must be really nice about this guy. Uh, if we've been harshly conditioned, if we have, if our neural hypersensitivity is based upon the abuse. Now, the first example I gave, you walk in a room, you see somebody... And something tells you there's something wrong with this guy. This is probably somebody who's rather healthy picking up on it. Mm-hmm. But for those who have been conditioned by it, they, they may be drawn to it. There's something about uh, one of the, and some of the uh, research that, that I did, uh, I don't know that I fully believe that this guy, but I see some merit in what he says. Some women are drawn to the uh, tough uh, guy, to the guy that does speak uh, harshly, the guy that does have anger. They may feel that that they're safe with him because he's intimidating. He's so intimidating toward others. Mm. Well, not safe with him, uh, and so. Um, another thing, and I recommend a book, it's called How to Spot a Dangerous Man. This is written by a, a psychologist. Her primary practice is with abusers. And she was able to, over the years, put together looking for the signs and symptoms that a man will give that that will say, this guy's dangerous. Mm-hmm. So if you if you want to learn more about that, I suggest you you get get that book. Mm-hmm. The brain will always seek the same. You know, one of the, again, uh, stress equals change. And what that means is uh, the brain is going to look at what will always be the same. You know, it's scary. It really is. It's scary to think about something different. What if I get out of this relationship and get into a worse one? Mm-hmm. Okay, well... Uh, and that's why some some women change. Why some women stay in a, a, a abusive a relationship? Well, the brain uses that to say, uh, "Go from one relationship to another relationship that's just like it," hmm. because the brain literally has been conditioned. Right. And I think, like, for those who are listening as well, I think like it's really important. Like you said something to me about how also coming to terms and 
recognizing that like you are worthy and you are valuable and you are worth that change to accept a safe and loving partner. But until we can come to that place where we truly can like receive it because we believe that we are worth that, I think like there's always going to be a pushback. I don't think that I, I mean, even for myself, I definitely didn't think I was fully worthy when Brayden came into my life, but like through that, God has used him to like really teach me a lot and, and really ask those hard questions of like, why can't I receive this love? Like, why is it so hard for me to like receive it? And then you had told me like, Hey, like, I just like think that, you know, if you don't think that you're worthy and valuable, then you're not really going to like think that someone should be investing in you if you don't think you're worthy and valuable. And so therefore I continue to seek out emotionally unavailable guys who I could continue to like prove myself to because in essence I was proving to myself that I'm not worthy and valuable because all these guys don't think I'm worthy and valuable so it was like re you know it was proving my point and allowing me to go through the continued same cycle over and over again but once I started to realize no actually I am valuable I am loved and disputing and displacing those thoughts I got to this point where I was like no actually like like I really do deserve a love that is steady and safe and consistent and I can receive this and continue to work on receiving it because it's obviously like a process. Again, the brain is doing things and believing things with or without our knowledge or or, or our permission. Mm-hmm. We call those automatic thoughts. And the more and more that we can figure what those automatic thoughts are, then the more and more we can dispute them If they're irrational thoughts, if they're maladaptive thoughts, we want to dispute them and say, no, that doesn't make sense. You know, don't go down that rabbit hole. That's not true. And so we have to force ourselves to dispute it. And then we have to force ourselves to displace it. Right. So whatever we're we're emotion that, that, that we're feeling, for instance, if I'm feeling anxious, and I don't want to feel anxious. Well, what do I want to feel? Well, I want to feel at peace. Uh, I don't want to feel angry. What do I want to feel? I want to feel joy. Now, uh, what thoughts are going to make that happen? We want to look at circumstances and say, well, if that person would change, I would be happy. Well, it could be. But so many people, again, they'll go from one relationship to another and they never seem to find happiness. Hmm. And if that's the case, it means there's something in our brain that's driving us. Hmm. And so we have to know what that is and we have to change it. And there's change for everything. Problem is when we get in that that state of helplessness and hopelessness, and and the brain is not look, not seeing any other options, it will give up. Mm. And you say it's too hard, I can't do this, and the brain will cause us to just give in to it and accept it as well. This is the status quo. It is what it is. I can't change it. Now, you have the power to change everything. You may not be able to change that particular circumstance. But if you can get out of that circumstance and find a new way to live. But it all starts in the brain. Hmm. That's so good. Um, Pastor Carl, thank you so much for coming on and, and for just like talking about this. I know it's something that I feel like I could talk about for like five episodes because I just feel like it's so, I don't know, there's just so many like facets to it. And like, it's really interesting to me, like learning, to, beginning to understand kind of just like why we do the things we do and how to unlearn and, and undo certain you know, unhealthy aspects like that I think have been built over time, whether it was on purpose or it was done to us. And so 
there's still that responsibility though, to heal and to work through those things to cultivate healthy lives. And so, um, I just appreciate you taking time to come on in and share this with us. Cause it's, I know it's helpful for me and I'm sure it's going to be helpful for so many others. Well, I hope it's been helpful. Just remember when somebody's yelling and screaming and putting you down, that says more of their character than your character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so good. All right, guys. Um, thanks for listening. If uh, this season has impacted you, I'd love for you to just leave a review. You can leave it on Apple podcast, um, or you can rate the podcast on Spotify as well. This really helps other listeners to know that, you know, you're learning something from this podcast and being impacted by it. Um, if you feel like there's somebody who needs to hear this, uh, definitely sharing the podcast as well. Um, word of mouth has just been such a big thing in seeing what was her name grow, um, and become what it is now. So, um, again, thank you so much for listening and stay tuned next Thursday for our next episode. Thanks guys.